0: And welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. I'm Marianne O'Hotta. And I'm Danielle George. And as you'll probably know by now, our podcast is all about research communication. Amazing things are being discovered every day, and we want to help
1: you find the best ways of communicating your own research to a wide audience. Exactly. And that might be for loads of different reasons. You might want to influence policy. Or inspire a younger generation. Or fight misinformation. Or maybe you just want to, you know, change the world. So the big question we want to answer today is what are we made of? And what do we mean by this? Well, basically, it's all about the different people that make up our community. It's impossible to communicate if you don't have anyone to talk to. And if we're only talking to a small pool of our established contacts, we don't have our assumptions challenged and we miss out connecting our work with the people who might need it most. Exactly. So this episode
0: is going to look at a few of the ways in which we can make strong connections with a diverse range of people.
1: You're going first this time, right? Yes. So the first thing I want to tell you about today is a project and online platform called Unique Scientists. Earlier this year, a cell biologist called Efra Rivera-Serrano posted a picture of himself. It was He actually tweeted a selfie at the gym showing his tattoos and said, time to destroy the stereotype of how a scientist should look like. Hashtag be yourself. Nice. Scientist with tattoos. Really, really good. And he got loads and loads of positive feedback. But there was one professor replied to his tweet saying, not necessary. We have something called etiquette and good laboratory practice. And he also tweeted a picture of a bent fork with the words, just because you're unique, it doesn't mean you're useful. Can you believe it? Amazing. So there was loads, you can imagine, there was loads of of other feedback on this. Um, <laughs> that person is very, very sad inside. Yeah, indeed, yeah, yeah. And imagine how Efra felt, you know, when, when he tweeted that and got that amazing reply. And so two weeks later, Efra got an international team together and founded Unique Scientists. Now, Efra himself was busy traveling the world, but we got to talk to one of his team members about the project instead. This is Rhiannon Morris.
2: I am a PhD student and I'm a structural biologist um, which means essentially that I look at what proteins look like I'm also part of the unique scientist team and I look after the web page
1: and this is what unique scientists do.
2: We uh, release bios of scientists from all around the world with really different diverse backgrounds to showcase the diversity of science a different range of people who can do science and the fact that you don't have to be one certain way to be a scientist. And we really wanted to highlight that diversity um, and get people excited about all the different types of science that there are, all the different types of people there are in science, et cetera. Um, And we started as the website and we also have an Instagram and Twitter. um, And every two to three days we release a bio of a scientist. Um, They can be in science, engineering, maths, technology, any of those things. So
1: what sort of people do you champion? I had a quick look this morning and there are a lot of women there sort of underrepresented. I, I think women are underrepresented in STEM. Is that true across the sort of unique scientists? Do you get a lot of women?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's really true. We actually have this discussion in our little group chat often, which is that we have so many submissions from women, which is great because obviously they are underrepresented. But often we also struggle with getting a lot of the men to do it because they just think that they're not unique and they're not exciting. And we're trying to really break that idea down for people. Like obviously the stories from the women are fantastic and amazing, but it, it's great to even read some of the ones from the men who you wouldn't necessarily think that they're the type of person who needs to be highlighted, but it's great to have them in there as well.
1: So do you have any examples of some really cool individuals that you've discovered with unique scientists?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I am really lucky in that I get to read pretty much every bio that goes up. And one of the people who really stood out to me is um, Danny Beck. Um, Danny, I believe, mostly grew up in Norway, which is a fair-skinned country, and he has dark skin. So I think he faced a lot of racism because of that. But his story is awesome, and I got to know him on Twitter on Instagram and he's just this vibrant and amazing person who I never would have got to know if it wasn't for this unique scientist thing so that's been absolutely fantastic um and there's just been so many wonderful people even one of my friends who I go to university with she submitted a bio and it was absolutely beautiful and I didn't know a lot of these things about her so reading it I was like oh my goodness I would have never have known this if this wasn't a thing
1: do you think is it is a PhD student it's a it's a good support network then Absolutely. I think
2: a lot of people could really benefit from using social media to form a support network. I know a lot of people who um, I know I can just go to at any day, time of the day and chat to if I have a problem. And there's people who have niche little problems. And I know, like this person in the United States will be awake at this time. And I can complain (laughs) to them about this technique not working because I know they use it, etc. That's
1: really good. So do you think it's
2: changed your outlook? Yeah, I think it has. Absolutely. I think definitely you do live in a little bit of a bubble sometimes. Um, And I think reading all these stories from people and some of the challenges people have faced, but also their triumphs, it's been really amazing for me. Um, And I definitely feel like I've made all these new friends all around the world and I could pretty much travel anywhere around the world and I would find someone that I know because of
1: this. I think many of us probably do find ourselves in that bubble, surrounded by people who are are similar to us um, with similar interests. How do we break free from that? I
2: think actually people really do give social media a bad rap sometimes. And I guess it deserves that in some ways. But personally, for me, using social media and these types of things, especially like Twitter Twitter. And that community, there's a great science community there. And putting yourself out there and having these chats with people really breaks down those kind of bubbles that you live in, just in your own world, going to work and where you live, etc., And just immersing yourself in that culture, that's really broken down a lot of those barriers for me. And I really love to encourage people
1: to do the same. So how could our listeners get involved with Unique Scientists?
2: So they can either just Google Unique Scientists and hopefully it'll pop up or on Twitter, our um, handle is also underscore a scientist um and that's the same on instagram and people can go there and they can follow us on twitter and the links for everything and from there um and on the website there's just you go to a submission portal and we have i think the submission form in almost 10 different languages now so you just pick your language that you want to submit in and you answer the questions and it sends it straight to us
0: unique scientist
1: sounds amazing and it only started in June this year. I know, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Rhiannon told me that they've had hundreds of submissions and thousands of page views already. And they've got one more because I decided to submit my profile too. That's because you are unique, <laughs> Professor Danielle George. <laughs> so are you. I,
0: th- I think it was quite interesting that she was saying that they struggled to get men to sign up because they're like, well, I'm just a guy. I am like the normal scientist, not the special kind. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. I think that's why I like the the idea of it. It's unique scientists, not different scientists or whatever. And this, this idea that we're celebrating being unique. Yeah, so that's a diversity
0: of opinion, of background, of ethnicity, everything. But it doesn't exclude anybody. Exactly. It feels really, really inclusive. And I think fundamentally that makes science more powerful the more people who are included the broader the the perception of it to the public as well the better it can be for everybody yeah absolutely okay right so my turn to introduce you to someone Mm. hello i'm dr stephanie de and stephanie does something pretty unique I am
3: a co-founder and director of science at Lion Guardians.
0: Stephanie works in southern Kenya and as she spoke to us she was looking at Mount Kilimanjaro with birds tweeting in the background. So a better view. Well, actually that's so <gasps> rude cuz like, you're facing Sorry me, Danielle. Man. Just as good a view, as I have right now, <laughs> staring at your lovely face. Um, Stephanie and her co-founder, Leela Hazar founded Lion Guardians in 2007 with the aim of reducing human-animal conflict, particularly between the Maasai and lions.
3: Hmm. Maasai and, and lions have coexisted for centuries, but there's always been conflict because Maasai are very um, reliant on their on their cattle and their livestock. Um, they're a very traditional pastoralist society, and they really value their livestock. And lions, of course, are carnivores, and they really love meat. So they often will eat the livestock. So that really brings conflict between the people and the lions. Um, there's also this historical interface conflict between the the Maasai communities and lions, in that Maasai traditionally hunted. Maasai men, young men, warriors would hunt lions and pr- to prove their manhood. Um that's that cultural aspect has has slowly died out. Um but there's still a lot of hunting of lions especially in retaliation after they've killed livestock.
0: It was when Stephanie first got to the field to complete her PhD research that she realized just how important the Maasai would be as research collaborators.
3: Yeah, I mean I went to school, I got a PhD But I learned more in in the time I've been here with with the guardians on the ground, with the communities. Honestly, it's the thing that inspires me the most is how much knowledge um, these communities have about their landscape. So when I started, I was told by my advisors and mentors, my academic mentors, that, A, you're never going to be able to know all the lions. You're never going to be able to see them. And you're just there's no possibility of that. You know, I went out every night and I tried to do what I was taught to do in school—doing field research. You know, you do collins and you you run transects, and you know it's very traditional, sort of Western science. I did this for months, right, months, and I didn't find any lions. Um, and the warriors just kind of said, "If you want to find lions, we can show you lions," and I was like, "Really? Because I've been looking, I've been doing collins, like I've done everything, right?" and they said yeah sure no problem and they just literally within two days (laughs) we found lions like they just find them.
1: But I feel like I'm missing something here because why wouldn't you listen to a local community and especially if it's something like um, in conservation? I think I mean fundamentally when you put
0: it like that it is a really good question but it's happened loads in the past that effectively, Western research was will turn up in a field area and say, okay, well, there's local people there and they do their little local thing, but I'm here to do proper science. So I'll 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 make nice, I'll make the contacts that I have to do just to keep everything mo- running smoothly so I can get on and mm. do my work. Whereas Leela and Stephanie with the organisation Lion Guardians have put the local community absolutely central to the research work that they do and said, you know, this isn't just about sort of being friendly to the locals so that we can get on with our work. This is about the people and with the people, and the Maasai knowledge is as valid as the Western scientific tradition. Hmm. And the research agenda that's undertaken by the Lion Guardians is led
3: by the Maasai based on their insight and their knowledge. I would say all of our research is comes from the Guardians and the communities themselves. So when they come to us and say, you know... Um, we've noticed there's a change in the lion behavior. And then we set up a study around that um, because we want to reduce, our aim is to reduce conflict, to reduce, you know, how much livestock lions eat. So we actually, once a year, we bring all the guardians together um, and we have a big celebration here in our camp and lots of dancing, lots of meat eating and lots of fun. But the, when everybody first gathers, we come together and we sit for about two or three hours. And we do. We give a feedback session on the research that's that we've been doing, and numbers of lions we've been monitoring, and all the stuff that they've been doing. And and then we open the floor and say, what do you guys think? What are, you know, what are some burning questions? What sort of research should we do? And what do you think of the output so far? And it's it's tremendous. We learn so much, and and tailor our science, tailor our research just around you know, what they're finding.
0: So the Lion Guardian's principle is turning hunters, lion hunters, into lion protectors, but it's all undertaken within a pre-existing cultural framework. It already makes sense to the people working and living in that area. In Maasai culture, it's
3: different age sets. So we always hire from the warrior age set um, which is the age set that's tasked with protecting their communities. That's the ideal candidate, someone who's really tied to the landscape, who really understands lion and wildlife behaviours, who knows how to track, knows how to find lions, isn't scared to track lions on foot alone. And so their main aims are to find where the lions are and make sure that they, the herders and the nearby herds kind of leave that area so that, so there's no interaction between lions and, and the livestock Um, They also, then in the evening, they help the herders bring the herds back in. If there's someone, you know, herders here, you can go out and the little boys and girls can be five or six years old um, that go out and they can get lost. And the guardians, because they're out in the bush, they know how to track. They're the first to be called. And the guardian goes and finds them and brings them home safely. So there's a lot of community assistance. And that's the traditional role of the warrior anyways. So that's one way to keep the culture alive. And after a decade of working in the
0: Amboseli Savo ecological zone, this is what Stephanie has to say about the impact they've had.
3: I mean, I think we generally start with the things that we know can come from from us, and that's that's a real empowerment of the warriors. So there's the community side of it, and then from the lion population, there's I think you know it's hard to say because you also need you need prey availability, you need water, you need all those things um, for lions to to thrive. But in the years we've been monitoring the lion population, it, it's increased more than five times what, like the densities that we started with. So we had about one lion per hundred square kilometer, and now we're up between five to six lions per hundred square kilometer. There's so much you learn <laughs> through the years of working with communities, but I would say number one is to listen. Truly, the most important tool is to really, really listen um, to what the communities say. Um, they know way more, way more than, you know, as a scientist coming in, a researcher that we could ever know. That's the most valuable tool. And then, yeah, listening, being respectful um and time you know things don't happen overnight it takes a very long time and so it's just you know i wish somebody would have said to us when we were starting like think about what happens if you do succeed in 10 years and 20 years you know what's going to look like if you do have 200 lions which we have now which i could have never fathomed <laughs> at the time when we had like 15 um so I think you know thinking the long term even if it seems like it's never could never happen it it doesn't hurt to to think around that and to hope for the best and that's yeah that's a that's also a big one is hope like don't lose hope um you you keep at it
0: There's something I want to ask you about um should we call it feedback? Mm-hmm. Uh, a big part of being an academic is submitting your work for review or getting questioned by peers. Um, have you ever had less than constructive feedback?
1: Uh, yes, yeah. I think probably everybody has who's who's submitted something. Um, you know, there is there's supposed to be constructive feedback where you get sort of negative feedback, positive feedback, Negative feed forward and then positive feed forward as well. What's feed forward? Yeah, that's quite an important one because it's, so negative feed forward is things to avoid in the future. So that can be really useful. So instead of just talking about things you've done and you can't actually change, let's look forward and, and say, okay, these are things you need to avoid in the future. And then positive feed forward is things that you should do to improve your performance or whatever in the future. And I suppose as a supervisor
0: of PhD students, you have to give your fair share of feedback or feed forward yourself. How do you
1: make sure that it's actually beneficial rather than you just venting your spleen? Yes, yeah, you really have to make sure that, definitely. <laughs> um, and I think it's feedback should be individual. Um, and, and especially for a PhD student, because, you know, as we've talked about, all scientists are unique. So, you know, each PhD student will react differently to, to their feedback. As a supervisor, I have to adapt to that to make sure the PhD students get getting the best out of it.
0: And then what about the critiques, for example, when you've published work? So it's to a much wider peer group, um, potentially people you don't know on a personal level, but who are kind of Telling you what they think
1: about the thing you've been working on for the past five years. Yeah, yeah. Rejections um, are really hard to take, and and it happens. It happens now. It happens. You know, when you when I was a PhD student, um, but after some time, you sort of get used to it. Uh, because it happens quite a lot, right? So, and and that's fine. Are these rejections for papers? Yeah, yeah. So rejections from your peers, um, you know, if you've submitted a paper or something. I think what, what I've learned over the years is that the reviewers are human too. So you have to embrace it, take their comments as positively as you can, um, give it time, work on that paper again and resubmit and try and take the sort of positives out of what, feels like an awful process. So I'd like to introduce
0: Stefan Lewandowski at this point. Uh, We're talking to him live down the line. Hi,
1: Stefan. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Stefan, the the reason that Marianne and, and I wanted to talk to you was because you started some research into sort of criticism and debate, didn't you, with a colleague?
4: Yeah, I've published a number of papers on that issue, one of them with uh, Professor Dorothy Bishop from the University of Oxford, where we talked about the balance between transparency on the one hand and vulnerability on the other. One of the major issues that is confronting science at the moment, not just psychological science, but, you know, all scientific disciplines, um, is the need for transparency and robustness of our methods, And so there's been a very strong move in the scientific community over the last couple of years to become more open and transparent um, in the way we do research.
0: With the work that you did with um, Dorothy Bishop, you you came up with 10 red flags that, that can help people understand whether critiques that they're facing are... Um, valid, I suppose. Would that be a good description?
4: That's a good description, but I think I I have to put that in context a little because on the one hand... I totally support openness and availability of data to the extent possible. But on the other hand, we have the problem that some scientists are operating under very politically challenging conditions. Then scientists are exposed not just to legitimate critique, but sometimes also uh, harassment we have a problem in that we have to sort of differentiate between justified critique and scepticism on the one hand and on the other hand, politically motivated uh, attacks on scientists.
0: So we've got to find that balance, don't we? Between exactly. scientists having the confidence of their, their research to kind of uh, you know absolutely speak out and, and publish and and stand by their findings. And we also need the transparency and openness so that their research methods can be scrutinised. But also we need to be mindful of lobbyists or people with ulterior motives trying to derail that that scientific debate. Precisely. So you've come up with a kind of a, a short handbook on how we might navigate and determine whether this is legit Scientific debate, or whether it's erring towards something that is a bit more nefarious. And these are the 10 red flags. Could you tell us wh- what those flags are?
4: Right. Well, there's 10 of them, and we made them symmetrical. So, one of the fundamental principles with which we approach the situation is to say that the critics of a scientist should be held to the same standards as the scientist himself or herself. So um, we have to look at both sides involved in this issue. And so, for example, the first um, red flag or the first criterion is expertise. So if there is something being contested, then the first thing I would ask is, well, whoever the scientist is, does what they're saying now fall within their area of expertise? Or are they speaking outside an area in which they were trained? And likewise, I would ask that of the critics. If there is a critic who's saying, oh, well, the scientist is making stuff up and he or she is a terrible person, then I would look at the expertise of that critic.
0: So then we've also got um, whether... Either the scientists or the critics have a conflict of interest. Exactly. Whether um, the critics or the scientists are communicating through peer reviewed journals. Exactly. um, Is there a record of errors on either side? Do they have a history of misrepresenting evidence? What's their background of scholarship? How transparent is their data and how available is their data?
4: Right.
1: So, Stefan, what advice would you give to to early career researchers?
4: Well, I think, first of all, make your data available. Be transparent about that to the extent possible. Um, When I say that, I have to add that there are some research areas like in medicine where it is difficult to fully anonymize data and where you have to be very careful. So that's my first piece of advice. And the second piece of advice is to accept the possibility that there are people out there who will not believe you when you're being transparent. And then, you know, to deal with that requires a very different process from conventional transparency. And that is what our paper was about.
0: Do you think at that point it comes out of the realm of science and into kind of how one ought to conduct oneself in public? And that, that applies to, to everybody, not just scientists. It, we need a kind of a stronger set of rules of etiquette and engagement in a, a digital
4: world. Indeed. And that is exactly right. I mean, the, the debate about transparency and, and versus uh, attacks on scientists is just one part of a, of a much bigger picture involving incivility and cyberbullying and misogyny on the internet and all these other variables. And you're absolutely right. We have to find a way of managing that.
1: Okay, so we're nearly at the end of this episode, but just before we go, we've got time to hear this week's contributions to the Wiley Research Fictionary. This is our collection of all the bizarre made-up words that help to describe very specific
2: things in
0: the life of a scientist. So this is what
2: Rhiannon Morris had for us. The word I would like to contribute is geshering, and I use this to describe techniques that are more like just a random number generator than they are actual, accurate measuring techniques. And this is what Stephanie wanted to contribute. And the
3: word I'd like to contribute is osiligify. It's a made-up word based on the Maasai word me, osiligi, which means hope. So we use it as osiligify something, which is like to fill something with hope. Thanks so much for listening
0: to This Study Shows. If you'd like to share your words for our fictionary or feedback, then tweet us at WileyInResearch or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. We'd love to hear from you. This Study Shows was presented by me, Marianne O'Hotter. And me, Danielle George. It's a Wise Buddha production for Wiley Research. The producer was Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Wise Buddha was Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research was Samantha Green.